0: In the auto-operatively curved space, new human beings between anaesthesia and biopolitics, in praise of the horizontal. In modernity, the meso imperative comparative increasingly changed into a prescription of outward application, its dissemination from the philosophical and monastic sphere into late aristocratic and bourgeois circles, and later also into proletarian and lower middle class groups, reinforce the tendency towards despiritualization, pragmatization, and finally the politicization of the dictative change. Thus, countless individuals in the centuries of modernization could follow the call to change their lives by opening the door to the typical products of their time. The magical paper products of the Gutenberg era, Bibles and non-Bibles alike, reached many, if not all, households over the years, decades and centuries. Whoever dealt with them seemed aeo ipso on the better path. Printed texts accustomed their users to the dynamic of their time, which was still entirely opaque to them. That new media spread old content until different circumstances provide new content. This is in turn kept in circulation by the aging media until the appearance of newer ones, which recycle the old media along with their old and new content. And what is decisive in all this what is decisive in all that followed is the observation that the demand for self-change and reversal no longer affected the change-disposed consciousness only from above. It need not always be the light from the vertical that casts the zealot to the ground before Damascus. The bright streak on the horizon towards which we wander on the ground now takes on a new spiritual and moral value. If the East is red, it cannot be a mistake to walk in that direction. The Reformation abolished the spiritual privileges of monastic life, as every point in the world is equidistant from grace. This changed the preconditions for a radical rejection of the world in the most sensitive point. If the ascetics and their strict orders were no, long, were no closer to the light than the laymen in public offices and workshops, the latter could also find opportunities to advance spiritually by worldly means. The Enlightenment was able to follow on directly from this, and more than this since the beginnings of the lighting policies that gave rise to the Lumieres. One could imagine the path to the illumination of all things as a gentle upward slope, on which anyone with a vaguely good will who understood the signs of their times could move forwards. An inarticulate urge from within was now to be sufficient in order to find the right path. Where there is an urge, there is a way forwards. From the 18th century on, a constant striding along, moderately rising paths was rationalized as the authentic mode of progress. Cultura non facit saltus. World improvement is the good thing that needs time. It is impossible to overstate the consequences of the shift towards a moderation of ethical standards. The tempering of aims restored an awareness of the moral chromaticism of the real. The ethical distinction moved to the level of nuances. It not only gave tepid Christians back their clear conscience, it even granted the worldlings precedence in the quest for the good life. In fact, it made it possible, after millennia of spiritual discrimination, to rehabilitate the worldly life as a positive movement in the horizontal, provided it showed a certain upward tendency. Whoever denied or dismissed this tendency was immediately reactionary. Whoever was not content with it would dream sooner or later of a vertical exit from anything that seemed horizontal, continuous, or foreseeable. Of revolution. Progress as half-price metanoia Thus the idea of progress and development in modernity transpires as the worst enemy of old-style radical metanoia. It deprives the steep, old-ascetic vertical of its plausibility, relegating it to the domain of fanaticism. This change lies behind the thousand whole, thousand-fold repeated misreading of modernity as the era of secularization. Certainly, Christianity lost its predominance in Europe from the 18th century onwards, but only a few Enlightenment zealots established a form of humans-alone movement that slammed shut all doors to the beyond and sought to transfer everything unconditionally to the realm of imminence. The general populace had always retained a vague awareness of transcendence, even in the supposedly secular centuries. William James called the popular tendency towards the simultaneously credulous and incredulous supposition of a higher reality, piecemeal supernaturalism applying it also to himself this disposition was perfectly suited to the pragmatic immanentism of the modern age as well as the good logical manners of academia and the educated audience and it is this familiar attitude that is attracting attention once more in the rumors currently circulating of a quote-unquote post-secular society The central moral historical event of this epoch was therefore not secularization, but rather the de-radicalization of the ethical distinction, or if one prefers, the de-verticalization of existence. This is precisely what is meant by the once great word, progress. The discrete spiritual sensation of the modern age was that the middle paths were now the ones leading to salvation. The moderation of divans for a radical disavowal of ancient Adam and his corrupt milieu gave worldliness a new dignity. They contributed to bringing about the cultural climate change in favour of a fundamental neophilia. It is unnecessary to demonstrate here how the inclination to welcome the new gave the modern age its futurist orientation. Since Hans Blumenberg's central work its debt to the rehabilitation of curiosity has been known. In its quieter periods, especially 1648 to 1789, and 1815 to 1914, and once more from 1945 to the present day, the newer era, all in all, was an age of half-price metanoia. In these times one could safely go along with the development driving forwards, Grosso modo, and let Adam live in a bourgeois guise. To consider oneself one of the justified, one of the good, it was sufficient to be in step with the times and follow the general trend of progress. From a critical point onwards, the reversal of consciousness was even supposed to take place for free, simply by remembering one's natural goodness. Rousseau even managed to proclaim Adam the true human being and denounce all attempts by civilization to educate him, better him, and make him strive upwards as aberrations. To this day, we do not know what caused the deeper culture rupture in recent centuries. Rousseauism, with its doctrine that true nature is free for all, or Leninism, with its fierce re-raising of the price for changing the world and humans. The latter spawned activists who prided themselves on large-scale killing for the good cause, while the former seduced countless educated men of the 19th and 20th centuries into believing that one could restore the human being's inner truth by doing away with all the cultural trappings and artistic superstructures. The half-price metanoia that defined the moral modus operandi of progressive semi-secular society the Baroque onwards enabled the historic compromise between self-improvement and world improvement. While the former was still entirely the business of the change-willing individual, the latter depended on the performances of the teachers, inventors and entrepreneurs who populated the social field with the results of their activity, pedagogical results on the one side, technical and economic results on the other. As far as changes of method are concerned, one notes how the emphasis increasingly shifts from the practising self-influence of the individual to the effects of teachers and inventors on the many from without. When Seneca wrote to his only student, Mayum Opus S, this was barely more than a motivating turn of phrase, not to mention a charming expression of pedagogical eros. He himself knew best of all that even in the demanding relationship between master and student, everything ultimately depends on the latter's willingness to mould themselves. Things look rather different from when the modern school and the guild of human fitters set about their work. Their life-changing intentions are undeniable, but their angle of attack is chosen in such a way that there can be no doubt as to the primacy of the outside influence. The early school drill has always preempted the student's own performance. Syllabuses lay down the courses of study before it can even occur to pupils that they might have an interest of their own in this or that subject. And for the buyers of competence-expanding devices, a possible contribution of their own is essentially meaningless from the start compared to the performance on offer. Each time it is the optimization from without that keeps the upper hand even when the inner sediments of tuition and the habitual use of life-heightening means – works of art, prostheses, vehicles, communication media, luxury items, etc. – become second nature for students and users. World improvement as self-improvement These observations can be translated into a distinction. In the practicing life of the spiritual ascetic virtuoso or athletic type, the agent has a self-improving influence on themselves via the direct route of daily training. On the path of world improvement, by contrast, they become a user of objective optimization tools that modify their ethical status indirectly at most, albeit not insignificantly. This distinction directly concerns the way in which the call to change one's life modifies the existence of the individual, As we have seen, where the metanoetic imperative is accepted at its full price, to retain our business jargon, existence comes under the steep vertical tension. It imposes the passion form of the individually chosen field on life, whether that of the quote-unquote religious, artistic, political, or sometimes also the sporting sphere. If, on the other hand, the half-price imperative is adopted, as in the shallower forms of enlightenment, progressive thought and starry-eyed idealism, a mode of existence is established whose aims are facilitation of life, breakdown of vertical tension and avoidance of passion. As, As long as the moderate tendency succeeds in presenting itself as the reasonable that is in the process of becoming the real, and thus claims universal validity, it is not overly problematic to compare and perhaps even equate technological progress with moral and social progress. For conventional progressism, the for conventional progressism, the journey forwards and upwards is one that does not need to be completed under one's own steam. It is like a current that we can allow to carry us. Coming from distant sources, it has flowed through entire epochs. Our ship of progress would not have travelled so far had it not been drifting on this current, though we have only recently started guiding it towards the port. Shame on anyone who has trouble imagining rivers that flow uphill. Today one calls complex masses and qualified movement evolving systems to neutralise the paradox and the requirement that forwards should simultaneously mean upwards. The postmoderns, Sheepishly note down the pale remnants of progress under the heading, Complexity Increase, as long as the early Enlightenment. Looking ironically over the shoulders of the positive religions itself functions like a religion, however, as an illusion training club for groups, and as a practice system for internalising surrealistic assumptions about individuals. It is the duty of every decent human being to promote the conviction that there are indeed rivers which flow uphill. having oneself operated on, the subject in auto-operative curvature. It is necessary to insist on these essentially familiar and established observations because the complications that will concern us in the following can only be understood against this background. They relate firstly to the intense frictions between the strong and weak forms of the metanoetic imperative in modernity and secondly to the relationship between the optimizations I carry out on myself and the life improvements which, as a contemporary of advanced inventions and services, I arrange for others to perform. I shall refer to the first mode of action as self-operation, which makes the phrase having oneself operated on as a logical choice for the second. Together they refer to competing modes of anthropotechnic behavior. In the first, I am moulded as an object of direct self-modification through measures on my own. In the second, I expose myself to the effects of others' operating competence and let them mould me. The interplay of self-operation and having oneself operated on encompasses the entire self-concern of the subject. Modern conditions are characterised by the fact that self-competent individuals increasingly draw on the operative competence of others for their acts on themselves. I call the referring back of having oneself operated on to self-operation, the auto-operative curvature of the modern subject. It is based on a strongly evident fact. Whoever lets others do something directly to them is indirectly doing something for themselves. This leads to an altered way of integrating suffering into actions. The competent subject must not only attend to the expansion of his own radius of action, it must also extend its responsibility for treatments through others. It's easy to see why this is the only possibility in a modernized world. Individuals are not only unable to take the entire work of changing the world upon themselves, they cannot even take care of everything required for their own personal optimization by themselves. By exposing themselves to the effects of others' ability to act, they appropriate a form of passivity that implies a roundabout or deferred way of acting themselves. The expanded passivity competence of the moderns expresses itself in the willingness to have one operated on in one's own interests. The Treated Self Welcome passivity takes on numerous forms. Having oneself informed. Having oneself entertained. Having oneself served. Having oneself supplied. Having oneself aroused. Having oneself healed. Having oneself edified having oneself insured, having oneself transported, having oneself represented, having oneself advised, or having oneself corrected. Unwelcome forms of passivity supplement this series, beginning with letting oneself be blackmailed, through the dimension of disadvantageous employment contracts, for example, as examined by Marx, who took them as indicating a state of quote-unquote exploitation. Exploitation. It follows from this incidentally that as soon as exploitation becomes chronic, it does not continue without a degree of consent on the passive side. Finally, we shall mention letting oneself be deceived. It becomes relative in situations where the subject cannot cover its need for self-deception alone, and in order not to relent in its desire, turns to a qualified illusion provider who can supply what is needed. Whatever the subject lets others do to it, it not only appropriates the quote-unquote treatments after the fact, but seeks them of its own accord and integrates what is done to it into what it, is, into what it does to itself. From this perspective, one can see through Sartre's worn-out statement that we must make something out of what has been done to us as a one-eyed version of the passive-active interconnection. As is well known, Sartre always emphasised the act of self-appropriation, which puts an end to the previous acceptance of heteronomy. With this act, the subject breaks away from its being object for others, thus realising its freedom. At the same time, it does away with the bad faith that made it pretend to be a powerless something. Whoever claims to be a thing among things has originally deceived themselves. It's not hard to recognize the model of resistance being applied to the philosophical analysis of existence here. One can even discern the dramatic shadow of the French Revolution in the projection's background. In addition, this accelerated the shift towards the externalization of the dictate of change, and its ambivalent outcome called into existence the modern forms of radicalism. Dissatisfaction with the results of the revolution produced the concrete desire for its repetition. Dissatisfaction with the repetitions produced the abstract longing for its permanence. Sartre so it was lucid enough to transfer the chronic dissatisfaction from the outer front back to the inner one. The consequences speak for themselves. If self realization is presented as a rejection of passivity that must constantly take place anew, the ghost-light of permanent revolution takes hold of the individual's self-relationship. And Sartre, referring to Trotsky, in fact, spoke of true morality as a conversion permanente. This approach could only produce one result, the simultaneously destruction of politics and morals. What is de- decisive, in fact, is the free cultivation of the passive elements in the individual's self-relationship, corresponding to the auto-operative constitution of modern existence. For this we certainly do not need to choose the perverse exploitation of the suffering position, masochism, where the sexual relationship is embedded in a game of domination. In one of the most impressive sections of his early central work, Sartre shows this mode of having oneself operated on, as the paradigm of a cunning, voluntary, becoming object for others. Brilliant in literary terms, but factually misleading. The field of personal interest and skilled passivity is far more extended than the perverse contract of the pain seeker with the appointed abuser expresses. It is also much more broad than one can grasp via the critique of power and domination. If I arrange for a transport company to take me from A to B, I take on board the driving service offered as an acceptable suffering. Rides on hired vehicles only actually turn into masochistic ordeals on certain days. If I go to see my doctor, I usually also welcome the unpleasant examinations which the specialised competence enables him to grant me. I subject myself to invasive treatments as if I were ultimately performing them on myself. If I switched on a preferred channel of mine, I, Nolan's volens accept being flooded by the current program. McLuhan's punning remark that message, message is massage makes philosophical sense, if one recognise it as a competent statement on the question of the subject in the media age. Having oneself massaged symbolizes the situation of all, of all those who act on themselves by allowing others to act on them. In all cases of voluntarily sought passivity, it is easy to show how the passive aspects connect back to independent activity. This involves suspending that activity for the duration of the outside influence without abandoning the prospect for its resumption. The result is the phenomenon I here term the auto-operative curvature of actions in a highly labor-divided or rather competence-divided and practice-divided space of action. From the subject's perspective its insertion into the curvature determines its actions through the ability to suffer. It does not mean submitting to domination but rather sharing in a foreign competence If the operation endured leads to the desired result, the suffering subject will believe that it performed an act of self-concern by handing the law of action to the operator. The statement, I took myself in hand, is now replaced by a more complex formulation. I put myself in other hands so that, after complete a treatment, I would once more be able to take myself in hand. If it were possible to keep its pietistic connotations at bay, one could mark this figure of a passivity underpinned by independent activity as the manifestation of, quote-unquote, calmness that is constitutive of modernity. Calmness means passivity competence. It is the small change of ability that carries greater passions. It comes into play in situations where the subject is ready and willing to take the position of a client and profit from the savoir-faire of the operating partner. It is thus more a mode of prudence than the modern substitute for wisdom that Heidegger wanted to see in it. We recall, the philosopher had recommended calmness, gelassenheit, so that the modern human being, dazed by its own ability to act, could expose itself once more to treatment by being itself. In reality, passivity-competent behavior is part of the game intelligence of humans in an elaborated networked world. In reality, passivity-competent behavior is part of the game intelligence of humans in an elaborated networked world, where it is impossible to make a move without simultaneously allowing others to play with one. In this sense, calmness is inseparable from the self-conception of experienced actors for whom the philosophical chimera of the subject residing at the centre of its circle of actions has faded. Or rather, has lost its utility value as the self-description of the day. It is replaced everywhere by concepts for agents who operate and are operated on, prosumers and users of technical interfaces. Bartzon Brock, had already anticipated the figure of passivity competence in the field of art observation decades ago. From 1968 on, he set up visitors' schools at the Documenta in Castle, and had meanwhile developed these further into the fourfold concept of the certified consumer, certified patient, certified voter, and certified recipient. In the operative circle, medical calmness. One of the most important modifications of calmness comes into play when the subject visits its treating physician. Although the recent culture of having something done to oneself, which I shall here call the general form of having oneself operated on, generalised the figure of the client, the medical field contains an older form of passivity for which one normally reserves the word patient. It would not be surprising if it disappeared from the vocabulary of the medical system in the course of the 21st century, surviving only in conservative subcultures where sickness is viewed as a chance and the accident as a medium of self-experience. De facto, this area too has been subject to clientization for some time, assisted not inconsiderably by the juridicization of the doctor-patient relationship but whatever one calls the relationship between the doctor and their counterpart becomes acute when the latter entrusts themselves to the former for a surgical operation. Now one conventionally speaks of having oneself operated on, meaning that faced with a serious diagnosis, the patient must be prepared for subjection to an invasive treatment. The content articulated in the old medical maxim, Vulnerando Sanimus, we heal by wounding, translates on the patient side into a hypothesis. By allowing the infliction of skilled injury on myself, I contribute to my recovery. Although the asymmetry between the poles of patient and operator is great here, there is no doubt that the patient is an indirect co-actor, and thus meets the criteria for action in the auto-operatively curved space. The curvature is rounded into a complete circle if the operator is the operated, a rare exception, but one that applies several times in medical history. A notable example is the doctor Leonid Rogatsov, who had, who was forced to perform an appendectomy on himself in 1961 during a stay at Novolazarevskaya Station, a Russian research station in the Antarctic. A famous photograph shows him lying on a table wearing a surgeon's gown with a face mask, having just opened his lower right abdominal wall. An even more sensational case was that of the American mountain climber Aaron Ralston, who performed a spectacular self-amputation. Following an accident during a mountain hike in Utah in April 2003, in which his right arm was trapped under a dislodged boulder, he decided after attempting in vain to free himself for five days, to break his lower arm bone and sever the flesh with a blunt pocket knife. Afterwards, he travelled the world as a speaker, describing his unusual act of self-concern to packed venues. In 2000, there was considerable attention in the media to the case of the then 29-year-old British performance artist, Heather Perry, who performed a trepanation on her own skull, Using a local anesthetic and a special drill, supposedly to cure her chronic fatigue and attain a higher level of consciousness. Furthermore, we know from the life of the Indian wise man Ramana Maharshi, 1873 to 1950, oh, that must be Maharishi, that he underwent surgery several times towards the end of his life for a cancer on his arm, and each time turned down the anesthetic in favor of a yogic form of pain neutralization. For an illuminated man of the old school, it was clearly out of the question to accept the treatment of Western methods that violated the spiritual axiom of constant wakefulness. As a rule, the auto-operative self-reference that enables the subject to tolerate technical modifications to its body displays a gentler curvature. Since around the 18th century, it has expressed itself in the extensive use of stimulants among enlightened Europeans. Their application increased from the 20th century on, to the point of a massive use of doping agents in every possible discipline. It was no secret how dependent authors like Voltaire and Balzac were on caffeine, or how much Sigmund Freud owed to his nicotinism. Equally, connoisseurs of Sartre's later career know of the extremes brought about by his alternating alcoholism and amphetamine addiction. In all these cases, the decisive question was obviously what the stimulated parties made out of what the stimulants had made of them. Such addiction to amphetamines was not without a certain irony. It made him dependent on a substance that was intended to create a feeling of complete independence. October Revolution, the Ether Anesthetic From the mid-19th century on, surgical operations saw the inclusion of anaesthesia, without which having oneself operated on, in the narrower sense, would be inconceivable today. Its appearance on the stage of medical options was accompanied by one of the most profound modifications of the human self-relationship in modern times. If there has ever been a technical innovation that merited the use of the word revolution, It was the reintroduction of the general anaesthetic. Its first successful application was on the 16th of October 1846 in the operating theatre of the Massachusetts General Hospital, where it was administered to the patient Gilbert Abbott with the aid of a specially constructed spherical ether inhaler for the removal of a neck tumour. The operation took place in the presence of the Boston medical elite who constituted a rather skeptical audience after the failure of a similar attempt in the same auditorium using laughing gas. Once M- William Morton, the constructor of the ether ball, had induced the patient to take a few deep breaths from it, the surgeon Dr. Warren carried out the operation in just under three minutes before the reintroduction of the general anesthetic and surgery speed was of the essence, with no pain whatsoever felt by the patient. After completing the demonstration, Warren supposedly turned to those present with the words, Gentlemen, this is no humbug. Thus, the strongest neo-evangelic message in medical history was conveyed by the greatest understatement. This surgical 14th of July, which entered the annals of medicine as Ether Day, changed the anthropotechnic situation of modernity more radically, than any individual political event or technical innovation since, including the biopolitical experiments of the Russian Revolution, as well as all attempts at genetic manipulation thus far. While the Bastille was immediately torn down as a supposed quote-unquote symbol of despotism, the Patriot Paloy, a quick-witted building contractor who had appeared on the scene with a demolition crew as soon as the fortress was stormed, supposedly received the commission to demolish it as early as the 16th of July. The American doctors reverently preserved the scene of the rebellion against the tyranny of pain. The Ether Dome at Massachusetts General Hospital can still be visited in its original state today, a painting by Robert Hinckley from 1882, captured the scene. Within a few days, the news from America reached the old world by sea mail in almost 20 separate messages. European doctors received it with an almost universal enthusiasm, welcoming it like a secular gospel and imitating it to massive success. Only a group of sceptics and algophilic traditionalists who considered pain as part of the human condition initially refused to consider the new method for disabling pain. Among the vast majority there was a wave of emulation based not on mimetic rivalry, but on a long felt need for deliverance from an epochal evil. The 16th of October 1846 is the key date in the history of the operable human being. Since then, the rediscovered possibilities of having oneself anaesthetised have enormously expanded to the radius of having oneself operated on by surgeons. Through the development of such new anaesthetics as everpin, 1932, or Propofol, 1977, as well as highly effective opium derivatives, professionalised anaesthesia has for some time also had efficient short-term narcotics at its disposal enabling a significant reduction of wake-up time. Thanks to intensive research, the depth of the narcosis can now also be closely controlled, and the constant improvement of the necessary equipment rounds off the optimization of anesthesia. What made these rediscovered possibilities was the fact that between 1490 and and 1846, European medicine almost entirely forgot the anaesthetic techniques of antiquity in the Middle Ages, especially the formerly well-known and frequently used soporific sponges, which contained highly effective extracts from poppies, henbane, mandrake, and hemlock. This amnesia, which is still virtually inexplicable, was a factor in the harsh climate of reality throughout the modern age until the mid-19th century. In this era, surgical operations were almost always torturous affairs that amounted to agonies for the patients. On the human right to unconsciousness. In philosophical terms, the reintroduction of complete anesthesia marked a caesura in the self-relationships of modern humans not only because the contemporary subject's attitude towards its physical body and its operability is simply incomprehensible if one does not take into account the new possibility of consenting to the disabling of its sensitivity to pain. As self-awareness is often extinguished along with it, the subject faces the dramatic choice for temporarily resigning from its being for itself and entirely adopting the position of an unconscious in-itself and not only agrees to this injury in its own interests, the precondition for all having oneself operated on in the stricter sense, but also affirms artificial unconsciousness to gain an advantage. This is significant because it explicitly articulates a previously unimaginable thesis, that humans can no longer be expected to endure every state of wakeful being in the world. In this context, it is worth mentioning that before the term anaesthesia was officially suspended, officially established in the early 19th century, one sometimes spoke of suspended animation. This better expressed the central principle of the general anaesthetic, liberating the patient for the duty of animated passion. One could say that in October 1846, the human right to unconsciousness was established. The right of not having to be present in certain extreme states of one's own psychophysical existence. The claim to this right had been prepared by a fashionable gesture of the late 18th and early 19th centuries. The proverbial phenomenon of fainting due to overstimulation, which was accepted in particularly sensitive people, those of the female sex, as a mark of cultivated weakness, and flourished in the historical symptoms, excuse me, hysterical symptoms of the late 19th century. Furthermore, the techniques of animal magnetism and artificially induced somnambulism both discussed throughout Europe after 1785 and both early forms of what became known as hypnosis in 1840 enabled modern subjects to become familiar with the advantages of suspended animation. These methods, which became common from the late 18th century under the name of mesmerism, also in the context of social vaudeville entertainment, occasionally served among doctors after 1800 as a forerunner of chemical anesthesia. Mesmerism enjoyed an intensive reception by the Romantics and German idealists, as it could be interpreted as the royal road to the realm beyond everyday consciousness, almost a form of experimental theology. This play with artificial unconsciousness reached its pinnacle in the 1830s when laughing gas became the party drug of the British upper class. At the same time, elegant opium-eaters and educated narcomaniacs could be sure that their confessions would be read attentively by the public interested in anaesthetics of all kinds. Even two generations later, the propagandists of the Theosophical School, founded in 1875, Helena Blavatsky, 1833-91, to Annie Besant, 1847-1933, to and Charles Leadbeater, 1847-1934, to 1934, who showed a precise feeling for the spiritual market in mixing European mysticisms with Indian pyrotechnics, found an audience that longed more than ever for instruction in the art of self-renunciation, in the service of the self. Typically, modern techniques for expanding one's passivity competence were rehearsed in all these forms of conditional self-renunciation. Though not always with ego strengthening prospects. The element of auto operative curvature manifests itself most clearly in the medically required general anaesthetic, as it constitutes a borderline case of temporary not being oneself in the service of being oneself. It indicates a liminal zone that can only be shifted to regions even more distant from the self through an artificial coma provided that the prospect of a controlled return to waking life is assured consent to this type of suspended animation means the last possible level of calmness revolutionary uncalmness alongside the subject of appropriation of technological and social progress in the context of calmness culture or the system of conditional passivities, modernity brought forth a culture of uncalmness, based on the declared willingness to unwillingness to await the results of so slow progress. It includes a profound distrust towards most forms of, letting something be done to oneself. This regularly brings the domination critical motif into play, namely that power and its abuse are synonymous. Uncalmness and the general rejection of passivity are the root of the extremisms that began to take hold in Western Europe and Russia in the 19th century, and led them to the revolutions of the 20th century. Medical progress, on the other hand, aligned itself with the gradual model of the bourgeois enlightenment. This taught its adepts to view every improvement achieved as the starting point for further optimizations. This applied not least to anaesthesia-supported surgery, which, despite its great leap forwards around the middle of the 19th century, generally remained a case of cumulative skill increase on the path of progressive moderation. The simultaneity of optimism and realism in the standard concept of progress was tied to an ambitious cultivation of the feelings of the time. At every moment, satisfaction in what had been achieved was meant to balance out impatience at what still had to be achieved. Everything already possible had to be viewed in relation to the prospect of the not-yet-feasible. In any case, participation in the great work of uplifting mankind quote unquote, was unattainable without constant training in patience and impatience. Both attitudes were based on the tacit assumption that the path to further civilization was itself a civilized journey. The uncalm of modernity was responsible for demonstrating what can happen if this precondition is rejected. The adherents of extremist positions refused to participate in the balancing exercise between patience and impatience, voting instead for radical exhilaration. According to them, the truth lay in imbalance. Good, for them, was one-sided and partisan. Never give up impatience. This was the axiom of the desire committed to radicality. According to the purveyors of the extreme, the only respectable form of progress, the one that would tackle the social question at its roots, does not come gradually, but must rather constitute a sudden and irreconcilable rupture in the usual way of Of things. It is not an additional step on a prescribed path, more like a wild ride through uncharted terrain. The revolution builds its own roads in the direction it chooses. No slip road from the past can dictate where it should go. In the conquest of the improbable, yesterday's realists are out of place as route planners. The followers of such ideas rely on the objection that one must not be taken in by the illusion of the necessary gradualness of progress, for it conceals the reprehensible slowing of development by a class of ruling preventers, who are secretly determined to keep the people waiting until the end of time. They say progress, but what they mean is the perpetuation of the status quo. The most familiar version of this thesis is the Marxist one, which states that only the quote-unquote greed for profit of the capital owners prevents the general release of quote-unquote productive powers in favor of the workers who are usually blithely equated with the quote-unquote people. Another popular idea was the anarchist maxim that the preventers were first and foremost among the representatives of the states and its notorious ally the church which meant that only direct violence against both could bring about the necessary destabilization of the situation. Only dead souls accept the principle of gradual progress. Whoever is still morally alive listens to the voices testifying here and now to the intolerability of the prevailing conditions. These voices give the individual in revolt the mandate of immediate overthrow. The young Marx unforgettably formulated the categorical imperative of the revolution. It is the absolute duty of the activist... Quote, "...to overthrow all conditions in which man is a debased, enslaved, neglected, contemptible being." Quote. Radical metanoia as the will to overthrow. In reality, the rejection of the gradualness model of standard enlightenment... To which the liberals of the nineteenth and twentieth centuries clung as much as the social democrats and christian democrats, by no means stemmed solely from the pressure of social crises. It occurred because of a moral option whose inherent logic demanded a break with the existing state of things. The choice constituted the political continuation of the original ethical distinction between the own and the non own, as made since the beginnings of ascetic succession. The central nuance lies in the fact that everything which is now to be viewed as non-own is assigned to the past, while the own lies exclusively in the future. The ethical distinction is temporalized, splitting the world into things past to be rejected and future things to be welcomed. There is no hope in the present and the continuous. That applies in equal measure to ancient escapism and to the modern devaluation of all old regimes. But after the ontology of the finished existent was abandoned, and the becoming of a different world transpired as increasingly plausible, indeed inevitable, the future became an attractive home for those who made the great ethical distinction anew. Thus it becomes deplorable to seek the attainment of satisfying conditions via the gentle slopes of bourgeois world improvement. Whoever chooses this pass has essentially already decided to leave everything as it was, No matter how many changes of detail might give the impression that the affirmability of conditions is on the increase. In truth, the primacy of the past remains in force as long as the relationship between the vertical and horizontal dimensions is defined by the dominance of the latter. What the world lacks are not people willing to go along with changes on the plane. What it needs are people in whom an awareness of the vertical is reawakening. A few years before the October Revolution, one of the most distinguished authors of biopolitical utopianism in the early Soviet Union, the poet Alexander Sviatogor, 1899 after uh, 1937, had founded a group whose program included the abolition of death, the scientifically achieved resurrection of the dead, and the technological domination of the cosmos the group called itself the verticalists only those who take the idea of world improvement utterly seriously will arrive at the view that world improvement is not enough identification with the principle of externalized metanoia leads to the insight that the existing world that is to say the given social order will remain incorrigible until its basal basal construction flaws class society, and the unequal distribution of material and immaterial wealth, are rectified. Thus, the world of the existent must not be progressively improved, but revolutionarily eradicated. With the help of reusable elements from the old old construction, the new construction can begin, after the great rupture in the spirit of equality before the achievements, past and futures ones alike. Conventional progressism must be rejected so that the good intentions underlying it can take effect. It seems that the naivete of the progressives has been seen through once and for all. They sincerely believe they are doing a service to freedom by opting for small controlled steps. In reality, they are allying themselves with what is quintessentially bad, with the conditions based on the private property of world-improving means. The notion that property is the means to all other means was ruled out by the new radicals. The deep-seated ressentiment towards private property, including towards anything private, blocked the conclusion that follows from any impartial examination of wealth-producing and freedom-favoring mechanisms. An effective world improvement would call for the most general possible propertization. Indeed, the political metanoeticians, enthused over general dispossession akin to the founders of Christian orders who wanted to own everything communally and nothing individually. The most important insight into the dynamics of economic modernization remained inaccessible to them. Money created by lending on property is the universal means of world improvement. They are all the blinder to the fact that, for the meantime, only the modern tax state, the anonymous hyper-billionaire, can act as a general world improver, naturally in alliance with the local malariists. Not only because of its traditional school power, but most of all thanks to its redistributive power, which took on unbelievable proportions in the course of the 20th century. The current tax state, for its part, can only survive as long as it is based on a property economy whose actors put up no resistance when half of their total product is taken away year after year by the very visible hand of the national treasury for the sake of communal tasks. What the un understand least of all is the simple fact that when government expenditures constitute almost 50% of the gross national product, this fulfills the requirements of actually existing liberal fiscal semi-socialism, regardless of what label is used to describe the situation. Whether people call it the New Deal, social market economy, or neoliberalism, what the system lacks for total perfection is a homogenous worldwide tax sphere and the long overdue propertization of the impoverished world. Against the background of the beginnings of a history of the ethical distinction outlined above, it is immediately apparent how the offensive articulation of communist and anarchist radicality opened a new chapter. It deals with the breakthrough of the metanoetic imperative into the political dimension. Its most ambitious manifestation coincides with the strongest tendency to external application. This is why the 20th century was the age of the commissars, who believed in changing the world by external and extreme means. We recall Arthur Kessler's essay, The Yogi and the Commissar, which was published in 1942, In the Heart of Europe's Darkness, and in 1945 supplied the title for a volume of essays on the moral situation of the time that gained international recognition. Political Verticalism, The New Human Being On the eve of the Russian Revolution, then, verticalism could no longer assume its original form, in which it would purely have concerned individuals. Since the beginnings of ethical secession, it had been entirely down to them to force the impossible and remould themselves through tireless asceticism into wise men, godmen, new human beings, preferably alone or in cooperation with other like-minded individuals if absolutely necessary. Even the wise men on the throne, Antoninus Pius and Marcus Aurelius in the west, Melinda and Ashoka in the east, did not think for a second of turning their individual philosophical metanoia into a state metanoia, a reversal for all. Even Paul, whose message was of the end of the world of death, was only actually speaking of the few who, through concern for their salvation, would be capable of joining the ranks of the saved before the imminent end. In the course of its progress through the Age of Imminence, the absolute imperative turned into a dictate, you must change the world, down to the very last elements of its construction and with the involvement of everyone. Whoever sought to execute this dictate as a mere constant progression, through the synergy of school, the market, and technology, would be falling prey to the most dangerous of all temptations from the start. They would be succumbing to the siren song of the bourgeoisie to choose the path of conformity, on which the old state remains intact beneath the semblance of constant improvement. The revolutionary, however, has themselves tied to the mast like Odysseus, Undaunted, they traverse the ambivalent zones where liberal and social-democratic sounds tempt them. The better they know what they are refusing, the more cold-bloodedly they can remain committed to the mission. The great change, then, can only be brought about by a categorical renunciation of the shaping principle of the old world, a decisive rejection of mankind's division into the privileged and the non-privileged, the haves and the have-nots, the knowing and the unknowing, the rulers and the ruled. This new version of the Metanoeta comparative directly affects the agents who submit to it. What it demands of them is no less than a complete break with their previous lives and a transformation into revolutionaries. This cannot be achieved by those who content themselves with electing a party that loudly proclaims re- rebellious slogans and least of all, by those who think it is enough to harbour secret satisfaction when the bourgeois media report bloody areas of quote unquote re- revolutionary violence. The revolution demands an integral discipline whose absorptive energy absolutely matches the great asceticisms of antiquity in the Middle Ages. Above all, becoming a revolutionary is not simply a decision, one cannot transform oneself into the human of the future overnight. The new human being is a great not-yet-for-itself, even if it is brought near by the most feverish anticipations. Entrance into the revolutionary process, therefore, is initially merely the beginning of a protracted self-renunciation. Whoever opts for the revolution as a new form of belonging must first admit that they are still human through and through. infused with the hereditary injustice of the entire history of mankind, filled with the inner sediments of class society, spoiled by the misconditioning of all previous generations, perverted and distorted even in the most intimate elements of their sexuality, their taste and their forms of everyday communication. They also remain the old human being in their continuing inability to be brotherly, most of all because they still exist as the victim of a distorted life instinct, or, as Trotsky wrote, a pinched, morbid, hysterical fear of death, the deepest source of non-solidarity among mortals. The only difference between the revolutionary and the old human being was that the former has realized the nature of themselves and others, while the rest either suffer mutely or succumb to one of the countless self-delusions that historical humanity developed in order to accommodate itself to its situation. The choice of an existence in revolution rules out both muteness and accommodation. Because it prefers the arduous path, it is comparable to an adept's flight to the Dharma path, or a novice's entrance into the Christian order. Perhaps the elite of Lenin's professional revolutionaries proves the validity of this analogy, at least in ideal, typical terms. The difference, however, is a significant one. For the latter activists, there was never a binding monastic rule, unless one counts the abstract imperative of total self-instrumentalization. An even greater difference is that the worldly or transcendent ethical authorities, which could have assessed the course of the revolution according to universally valid criteria, were disabled within their respective jurisdictions. The actually occurring revolution claimed ethical sovereignty, thus immunizing itself to all verdicts from out from without. If the party was always right, this was because the revolution is always right. Consequently, those who actually carried out the revolution were right. Hence, even their perversions were meant to be subject only to their own interpretations. No one who was not themselves at the front of the revolution was entitled to a judgment about the means it should choose. It alone could know how much killing was necessary for its success. It alone could decide how much terror would guarantee the triumph of its principles. It was Georg Lukács who, amid the war between white and red terrorists, coined the phrase second ethics for the free choice of means by the bearers of the revolution. This resulted in a situation where the revolution taking place could only be understood by its current leaders. The statement, I am the revolution, was only true in the theoretical and practical terms of Lenin and Stalin, who lived in the hotspot of the event, while none of the others, even seasoned fighters, could be sure of understanding the revolution. They all lived with the constant risk of suddenly being exposed as counter-revolutionaries. It was no longer enough to be orthodox in one's adherence to revolutionary principles. Now one also had to be an orthodox believer in the incomprehensibility of the daily manoeuvres of one's leaders. Even when it arrested, tortured and shot dead its most faithful followers, the revolution still claimed to be right. The believers who allowed themselves to be subjected to such things were not witnesses whose memories were collected in a Moscow martyrology. They resembled mystics who undertook the most demanding of spiritual exercises, the resignatio ad infernum, the attempt to want nothing except what God or Stalin wants, even if it is my damnation. Communist production of humans. In our context, there is no need to address the religious or religion parodying dimensions of the Russian Revolution. It is sufficient to hint at how the revolutionary complex of events took up the motif of human production, which was virulent since the Enlightenment, and pushed it to its provisionally greatest heights. It was characteristic of the communist experiment that, from the outset, it fought on both anthropotechnic fronts simultaneously in order to connect the spiritual ascetic And biotechnical components as directly as possible. One must keep the strategy in mind whenever the frequently invoked formula of the new human being is used. This production took place firstly in the elite cadres of the party, the training centers of the revolutionary morals. These were the collecting places for individuals who after an initial act of radical metanoia were working on the eradication of the old human in themselves. It's hardly necessary to show in detail how the dispositions of orthodox spirituality still in effect here, with their thousand-year culture of de-selfing became important. Anyone who postulated the new human being after 1917 only had to cover a small part of the moral evidence for this demand with the modern arguments that had been circulated in Russia since 1863, the year in which Chernyshevsky's epoch-defining light novel What is to be done? was published. Vrachmatov, one of the book's heroes, was a modern ascetic who slept on a bed of nails, trained his muscles, and strictly monitored his diet. How many replicas of Vrachmatov were at work in the Russia of Lenin and Stalin is a question to which we will never find a clear answer. The only certainty is that whoever demanded the utmost of themselves in the face of the revolutionary upheavals stood in a tradition that extended back from the Philokalia, the belated Russian counterpart of the imitation of Christ, to the Desert Fathers and the monasteries of Athos, and still had a virulent reservoir available for metanoetic procedures. Secondly, the call for the new human being. Is formulated in socio-technical and biotechnical language, because the productive powers involved by Marxism are, according to their moral potency, powers of world improvement. The revolution states that they can and must be applied to human material. If one wants to establish socialism according to plan, its architects must make themselves. Uh, its architects must themselves be produced according to plan. Bukharin's well-known claim in 1922 that the true aim of the revolution must be to alter people's actual psychology clarifies the dimensional leap in revolutionary anthropotechnics. With the production of the producer, the producing collective reaches the stage of reflexiveness. What was once transcendent morality becomes part of a circuit. The eternally unchanging group of asceticisms is replaced by a cybernetic optimization system. Many authors, including Trotsky, do not content themselves with the call to rebuild the psyche, and even held out the prospect of the genetic reconstruction of humans, even their cosmic form. The foremost revolutionary demand was the physical optimization of humans through an elimination of sick and inferior variants. Much the same as in the contemporaneous social democratic, bourgeois and folkish programs, This was to result in the improvements of mental qualities. Here, the parallels with the breeding speculations of scientific racism during the Nazi dictatorship in Germany are particularly clear. The final perfection of the great reform, however, was presented in ideas of which no mere eugenicist of either leftist or rightist persuasion could have dreamed. The emancipation of humans from space and time, from gravity, from the transience of the body, and from conventional procreation. Ultimately then, revolution means disabling the second law of thermodynamics. Even in the most utopian of concepts, one can easily see how the figure of action in the auto-operatively curved space affects the level of great politics to produce a revolutionary passivity, along with the revolutionary culture of activity. Whoever has grand plans must also endure a good great deal. In truth, everyday life after 1917 already forced the masses to be prepared for having themselves operated on by the functionaries of the revolutionary state. The new human being could only be forced into existence if the current ones were willing to undergo major operations. The role of surgical metaphors in the language of the revolutionary leaders would merit a study of its own. They clarify the price of every political holism. Whoever conceives of societies as organisms will sooner or later be confronted with the question of where to apply the amputation instruments. It is only in this context that the role of the aesthetic avant-garde in the Russian Revolution should be acknowledged. It committed itself to the titanic task of raising the passivity competence of the impoverished masses within a few years, to the historically necessary level. The principal agitative quality of revolutionary art stemmed from the intoxicating project of proclaiming, for the first time in history, the passion for all. This is the meaning of the didactic turn evident in the manifold varieties of committed revolutionary art. Peak performances of suffering were now offered by the commissars to the many who had previously known only vulgar suffering. No one was to be denied the right to crucifixion, though the technical matters of burial and resurrection were not settled in every detail. To convey what was on offer on a sufficiently broad scale, the fiction was spread that every single national comrade had entered a contract of treatment with the revolution, stating that they were ready and willing to endure and affirm whatever they were subjected to for their own good by the agencies of the Great Change. Only in the light of this hypothesis can one grasp the unfathomable passivity with which countless people bore the hardships of the transitional time between the legendary storming of the Winter Palace and Stalin's death. The most important shared task of the revolutionaries was undoubtedly that of enduring the revolution and furthering it in the mode of suffering under it. No one can deny the great achievements of the Russians and the peoples associated with them in the field. Even if the theory of the religious nature of revolutionary ideology has been repeated ad nauseam in the relevant literature, it must nonetheless be emphasized that, by its design, the Russian Revolution was not a political event, but an anthropotechnic movement in a socio-political guise, based on the total externalization of the absolute imperative. Its contribution to make the nature of religion explicit is of lasting significance placing it in the group of synthetic illusion-practicing organisations in modernity, of which I have shown above using the example of the Church of Scientology, how they go about the production of auto-hypnotically closed counter-worlds. In both cases, the individually effective psychotechnic aspect was combined with mass psychological effects based on leader cults and group narcissism. In undertaking a large-scale attempt to seize power over conditions, the communist experiment demonstrated what activists should believe in, and what they must allow to be done to, to themselves for the old human to be remoulded into the new one. De facto, the communist upheaval triggered the second emergency of extensive biopolitics in the modern age. We discussed the first above in our recollections of the early modern state's demographic policy. The latter had failed spectacularly in the fine-tuning of its methods where, with consequences whose darkness requires no further elaboration here. The biopolitics of the Russian Revolution could likewise not be sure of its results, albeit for entirely different reasons. While the early modern states sought to produce the greatest number of subjects and took on board an enormous surplus of unusable ones. The revolutionary state strove for an organic collective of convinced individuals, and accepted the risk of losing all the others. The first biopolitics sought the solution to its problems in the mass export of humans and extensive internment, while the second found the solution in mass internment and even more massive extermination of humans. the biopolitics of the miracle and the art of the possible. We have have thus articulated the anthropotechnic secret of the 1917 revolution, and numerous authors have revealed it in different formulations. In the course of its appropriation by the Russian intelligence, the Western idea of political revolution underwent a metamorphosis that moved it towards depoliticization and remoulded it into a radical metanoetic experiment. One must almost call it a subversion of politics through orientalization, but not only for the sake of portraying the Soviet state power as an oriental tyranny. East, in this case, refers to the tendency towards the supremacy of the spiritual factor. It seems that a revolution on Russian soil could only take place without becoming a... It seems that a revolution on Russian soil could only take place without becoming analogous to a conversion. The result was the enormous spectacle of a conversion from without. Conversion means spiritually resetting one's life. Revolution implies a gesture of redesigning the world from zero. It transforms historically congealed reality into a mass without qualities that could literally turn into anything in the reconstructive phase. In the chemical flask of revolution, the matter frozen into qualities is transformed into a totipotent potential that can be used by new engineers for free subjects, uh, for free projects. Improvement is the priori- Where world improvement is the priority, the new human being must be imagined as a function of a new society. The new world comes about as the production of revolution and technology. The call for the technical repetition of the miracle is the most intimate agent of great change. For an enterprise on this scale, the reassignment of faith from the miracle to the miraculous is not enough. While the Christian yogic traditions reserved the impossible for the few in their cults of saints and living saved figures, The spiritually subverted revolution reclaims the impossible for all. The definition of politics as the art of the possible, thus my premise, passed its historical test, grosso modo. The good German Chancellor, Otto von Bismarck, to whom we owe this formula, was presumably unaware that he had coined a phrase that momentarily put him on a level with the classics of political theory. He knew exactly what he was talking about, however, as he witnessed the opposing position, the politicization of the impossible, and the remoulding of daydreams into party programs. On a daily basis, in all varieties from left to right, in the Berlin Reichstag, as well as contemporary German and European journalism, From the second half of the 19th century on, equations of the desirable with the realisable constituted the preferred procedure of the zeitgeist for disseminating its slogans. At the same time, the mass press had recognised its most important task in the transport of illusions to its customers. In the era of mass circulation, the media are in fact not so much organs of enlightenment for an audience of learners as service providers in the auto-operatively curved space of mass having oneself deceived. Only in contrast to the laconic thesis of the last German real Politiker can one understand what happened in Russia in the wake of the October Revolution. It created a platform for politics as the art of the impossible. In full awareness it abandoned the standard model of rational realism, in favour of an unabashedly surrealistic praxis, even when it donned the blood stained mantle of a real politic of revolution. Though it presented itself as gruesomely realist in order to secure its initial victory, it knew that it could only survive as long as there was a light shining on it from far above. It could only gain its justification in the steepest vertical. Verticalists were no longer simply the utopian poets around Svetakor, who had published his verses on the vertical already in 1914. The entire revolutionary elite was inspired by verticalist commitments. The Era of Abolition After the victorious civil war against the leftovers of the old society, the ascension of the revolution could truly begin. It rushed from one abolition to the next, from one securing measure to the next. The era of abolition was inevitably also a heyday for measures of all kinds. As far as abolitions were concerned, the elan of the intellectuals naturally exceeded that of the new lords of the Kremlin, though these too did what was necessary to earn their stripes as abolitionists. Not long after seizing power, they declared the abolition of private property, In their understanding of communism, this change in the legal system laid the foundation for all further resolutions. The abolition of bourgeois liberties ensued, and this was to be followed by that of the bourgeoisie themselves. The functionaries had understood why state overthrow could only be stabilised through a cultural revolution, meaning the liquidation of the bourgeois individual and its curricula. For them, the bourgeois was not only the class enemy who monopolised the means of world improvement, and perverted de jure shared property into de facto private property, he was the embodiment of gradualness, who unified all the errors of conventional realism and all the vices of self-centred rationalism. The first preliminary stage of the new human being was the non-bourgeois moulded in political revolution, who had left behind the purportedly natural egocentricity of the old human being, Along with it, the pre-form of the future human being also discarded the ethics of historical advanced civilizations concerned with the prohibition on human sacrifice, or more generally, the prohibition on taking innocent life. The abolition of moral inhibitions regarding killing was a decisive step on the way to producing the post-bourgeois personality. What resulted from this was no less than the figure of the saint devoid of conscience, the historical contribution of the Bolshevik revolution to universal moral history. Being and time, the Soviet version. In his book Soviet Civilization, Andrei Sinyavsky. Illustrates the prototype of the new human being using the figure of Felix Edmundovich Cherzhinsky, 1878 1926, chief of the notorious Cheka, the early Soviet secret police. He describes the feared model functionary who had spent eleven years in banishment in Tsarist prisons, whose training camps for those determined to stop at nothing between 1897 and 1917, as a man of steel with a soul as clear as crystal. He assumed the role of the Soviet Union's chief executioner, not because of cruel inclinations, but rather because he was prepared to sacrifice not only his own life, but also his conscience on the altar of the revolution. As a consummate Leninist, he had internalized his teacher's doctrine that the revolutionary knowingly gets his hands dirty. Only by sullying, sullying, himself morally, could he express his loyalty to the great cause. Like many historically aroused contemporaries in the 1920s, including those from the camp of non-Bolshevik revolutions, Dzerzhinsky had learned to interpret being as time. As a result, he wanted to do only what time wanted him to do. Th- he wanted to do only what time wanted to do through him. With the obedience of the calm person, he listened out for its signals, which could seemingly be received unencrypted at the time. Quote, And if he orders you lie, do so. And if he orders kill, obey. End quote. In this context, it it almost seems to follow a legendary template that this man, who was responsible for the liquidation of hundreds of thousands, had wanted to be a monk or a priest in his youth. It may be a tendentious fabrication that, as a crypto-Catholic, he secretly prayed to the Virgin Mary between cruel interrogations, or perhaps even after days full of executions. His wife stated plausibly that Zdzinski, the selfless activist who worked round the clock, who slept in a narrow iron bed in his office and died of exhaustion at the age of 48, had spoken of one day resigning from his office as chief executioner of the revolution. And as people's commissar for education, devoting himself to the education of children and young people for the coming society. Szynowski comments, Isn't that a wonderful prospect in the spirit of communist morality? The chief executioner converted into chief educator. And yet, the transition from the extermination of unusable and unconvinced humans to the breeding of usable and convinced ones seems far less absurd if one takes into account the logic of acting from zero underlying both of these functions. What distinguishes the Soviet executioner from de Maestra's executioner is that one cannot possibly imagine him secretly saying to himself, No one liquidates better than I. Immortalism, the liquidation of finitude. In the eyes of the philosophically radical among the representatives of the revolutionary intelligentsia, such phenomena as those described above were reduced to the surface effects of the kind that had to be accepted, Nolans-Volans, in a time of fundamental transformations. This group of ontological utopianists included, next to the aforementioned Alexander Sivertigor, Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, eighteen fifty-seven to nineteen thirty-five, an esoteric and rocket scientist who became famous as the father of Russian space travel. Alexander Yaroslavsky, eighteen ninety-one to nineteen thirty, an exponent of a cosmic maximalism. Valerian Muraviev, eighteen eighty-five to nineteen thirty-one who postulated the overcoming of time in a technology of resurrection, anaesthetics, and Alexander Bogdanov, 1873-1928, to 1928, an advocate of physiological collectivism and the founder of a movement for the struggle for vitality. For them, the metaphysical revolutionaries, almost all of whom were followers of Nikolai Fedorov, though some, like Sviatogor, negated his influence, who had laid the foundation for a politics of immortality with the philosophy of the common task. The Bolshevik beginnings of the Cultural Revolution were scarcely more than a crude, albeit limitedly useful, prelude to the true World Revolution, whose premises, prospects and methods these authors explored in their writings of the 1920s if the revolution made it possible to climb up the ladder of the abolition of traditional social problems the abolition of private property of production means uh, the abolition of private property of production means and the bourgeois personality were productive albeit provisional not to say inferior stages in a program of ascent whose heights none of those caught in the turbulences of a great change could imagine Yet these two operations, as momentous as they seemed to both the perpetrators and the victims of change, merely constituted the continuation of the bourgeois revolution of 1879, which had barely achieved more than the abolition of aristocratic privileges, the release of bourgeois ambitions and double-edged human rights rhetoric. From the Russian perspective, they contained... Continued? They continued the Czarist reforms of 1861. To the metaphysical revolutionaries, the achievements were at most preparatory episodes for a revolt of an entirely different scope. After the era of preliminary attempts, the time was ripe for an opus hominis on a larger scale. The rule of humans over humans had become offensive, but was only the epiphenomenon of a far older and more comprehensive enslavement. Had mortal man not lived under the tyranny of outer and inner nature since time immemorial? Was not nature itself the biopower that willfully created life on the one hand while letting it die equally willfully on the other? Did its universal domination not provide the matrix for all secondary forms of domination? Was it not necessary, then, to put the abolition of death on the agenda of a metaphysical revolution, and simultaneously an end to the fatalism of birth? What was the use of doing away with the absolutist state, as long as one continued to pay tribute to the divine right of nature? Why liquidate the Tsar and his family, if one did nothing to overturn the immemorial crowning of death as the Lord of Finitude? Ending the epoch of death and bagatelles. The speculative avant garde of the Russian Revolution thought it had understood that one must begin directly at the highest, r- highest rung on the abolition ladder if one wants to make the decisive difference. Otherwise, the elimination of abuses and inequalities among people, even the abolition of the state and all repressive structures, would be provisional and in vain. If anything, they only sharpen the awareness of the absurdity that afflicts egalitarian society, as long as it fails to abolish death, including all forms of physical imperfection. Whoever wishes to eliminate the final cause of harmful privacy in human existence must do away with the enclosure of each individual in their own little piece of lifetime. This is where the renewed common task must begin. The true commune can only be formed by immortals, among mortals, the panic of self-preservation will always dominate. The equality of humans before death only satisfies that international of reactionary egalitarians who enjoy seeing the rich and powerful perish like cattle. People of this kind have always sympathised with death in the role of the grand leveller, as presented annually at the salzburg Jedermann production since 1920, dressed in the kitsch of the time. What none of these friends of the just end for all want to admit is the simple fact that death is the ultimate reactionary principle. Each memento only pushes humans down further under the yoke of nature. The ideologues of death incessantly corrupt modern society by tirelessly inculcating it with the formula, death is inevitable. They provide the fuel for individualism, which encourages greed insofar as one can apply this term to the striving to maximise experiences and advantages of being within the narrow window of existential time. There could only be such a thing as a being unto death, which Heidegger emphasised as a structural feature of existence in his principal work of 1927, because even the most radical thinkers of the agonising bourgeoisie had not participated in the furthest reaching revolution of the present day. In 1921, Alexander... Sivotagor postulated a new agenda, beginning with this contention The question of the realization of personal immortality now belongs on the agenda in its full scope. It is time to do away with the inevitability of natural death. In these words, we once again hear the tempus est with which Christian apocalypticism turns into the project of history. Time itself has reached the point of supplying the password for the final historical e- enterprise. Do away with time. Whoever has understood the spirit of the age must ensure that there will soon be no more talk of finitude. The epoch of death and bagatelles was coming to an end. What was beginning was the era of immortality and infinity. Quote, Biocosmism alone can define and regulate society as a whole. End quote. One year later, Alexander Yaroslavsky announced the birth of cosmic maximalism, which incorporated immortalism, interplanetarism, and the suspension of time, while Alexander Bogdanov simultaneously published his ideas on a, quote, tectology of the struggle against old age, end quote. He enthused over the notion that one could realize socialism physically by turning entire populations into artificial kinship circles and immune alliances through extensive reciprocal blood transfusions. With this physicalization of brotherliness, blood, usually the domain of the right, transpires as the medium of an actual communist circulation. quote-unquote, anthropotechnics. Among the authors of the metaphysical revolution of the 1920s, if I am not mistaken, it was Valerian Muraview who examined the question of producing the new human being most extensively, thinking through its technological aspects from the widest possible perspective. Naturally, the contemporary thought form of the production of the producer was an omnipresent cliché in the entire Soviet sphere, not least in the working world, where the imperative of forced modernization presented itself most nakedly. It dictated the mass production of socialist proletarians as the most pressing planned task. If they did not exist before, the supposed carriers of the revolution should at least be brought into being after the event. The language game of human production was equally firmly established in Soviet pedagogy. As far as we know, however, it was Muravyev, whose writing of the early 1920s contained the first use of the term anthropotechnics, largely synonymous with the word anthropurgy, coined at the same time, who aimed more for the production of a higher form of human. Owing to his study of Eastern and Western spiritual traditions, Murderview saw the connection between the ascetic and the technical revolt against nature more clearly than other authors with biocosmist, immortalist tendencies. In his view, the achievements stemming from the conventional forms of asceticism and the yogi movement inevitably reached their limit because, through the age-old idealistic contempt for the material sphere, they remained defined by neglect of the bodily aspect. The remoulding of human beings, however, was not conceivable merely in mental and moral terms. It now had to be built on entirely new foundations, that is on technical, serial and collectively guided procedures. Among these, Muraviev states, eugenics would only have a secondary function on account of its clumsiness. Certainly, he writes, the eugenic procedures of the present go far beyond the primitiveness of Paracelsus's attempts to breed homunculi in calf stomachs or pumpkins. Nonetheless, they remain tied to the awkwardness of sexual reproduction, and the ugly excesses of natural birth, which can only be viewed as a quote, extraordinarily complicated, painful, and imperfect process, end quote. Eugenics through breeding, which produces favourable results with plants and animals, can only be transferred to humans to a limited degree. Consequently, Mouraviev continues, one must think about new procedures in which the division of humanity into men and women becomes meaningless the abolition abolition of birth and the production of humans in the laboratory must lead to a, quote, fourth method for recasting the human being, end quote. The other three being ascetic didactic, therapeutic medical, and eugenic breeding procedures. Here, the idea of what would later be called cloning momentarily appears, quote-unquote, budding, which, according to Mudoviev, should by no means only be considered the domain of lower life forms. If such a procedure were applied to more human to more advanced creatures too, and ultimately to Homo sapiens, humans would no longer be the result of a sexual relationship between two more or less narrow-minded individuals, but rather the work of a research community committed to the highest goals. When this community devotes itself to the production of humans, it celebrates a technical sacrament, in free synthesis outside of the old nature. The appearance of new human beings would mean that of a new body, which could subsist on light and would no longer be subject to gravitation. At the same time, the new technology for creating humans would bring on an unheard of level of individualization within reach. In time, the template human of today would disappear and the basis for vulgarity would be eliminated, not only socially and aesthetically, but also biologically. Then, artists of Shakespeare's and Goethe's calibre would no longer create dramas, but humans, and groups of humans, anthropic singularities and social sculptures that would make the works of earlier art history look like lifeless preliminary exercises. The principal operation of biopolitical utopianism in Russia can be expressed in a simple formula. What had previously seemed possible only in the imagination would now be realised in technical procedures. Where there were man-made works, there would now be a man-made life. Modern technology tears down the boundary between being and phantasm and transforms impossibilities into schemata of the actually possible empty sets that would now begin to be filled with actually existing entities. The term anticipation, which forms a common thread running through Marxist commentaries on the achievements of earlier cultural periods, would now refer to planned phantasms. The same transgression of limits, incidentally, forms the basis of the American mass culture flourishing at the same time, which especially since the flooding of the Hollywood Dream Factory with European émigrés had been producing one variation after another on the motif of dreams come true. Aaron Zalkind, 1889-1936, a Soviet psychologist who sought to combine Freudian and Pavlovian approaches in his Podology of the 1920s in order to reclaim the field of education for the widely used theory of conditioned reflexes, and to annex cultural theory as a field of application for higher reflexology, calls this, quote, scientifically based fantasizing, end quote. It provides the foundation for the art of socialist prognostics, This is the concrete utopian counterpart of Oswald Spengler's equally pretentious attempt to place the narratability of the future on a scientific footing through insight into the processual laws of cultures. In his report on the psychosocial future of socialist humans, Zalkind predicted that they would be transformed through revolutionary treatment into ever more stable, more productive, more vital and fundamentally sociophilic beings. They would develop a form of holistic immune system in which self-preservation would become a function of communal preservation, unlike in Western society where individualist disintegration proceeds inexorably. The blurring of boundaries between didactics, therapy and politics is characteristic of Zalkin's opportunistic, optimistic argumentation. It conceives of communist humans as unlimitedly flexible patients of change, who can only win if they allow unlimited operations on themselves. What Zalkin does not reveal are the methods of communist anaesthesia. Lenin knew. State terror is the functional equivalent of general anaesthetic in difficult operations on large collectives. Post communist postlude, revenge of the gradual. I shall refrain from commenting on the empirical fate of the immortalist and biocosmist impulses in the early phase of the Russian Revolution. No one should be surprised if the gulf between the programmatic and the pragmatic is dramatic in such projects. If there were a pantheon of Ikarian phenomena, the Russian bio utopians would have to claim a chapel of their own. Almost all of these protagonists of the highest abolition perished in the turbulences of the revolution they had so vigorously affirmed. Except for Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, who co-opted and honoured by Soviet officials as a brilliant son of the people, died in an advanced age in 1935. All other protagonists of the biopolitical revolt met an end more typical of the time. Sviatogor, disappeared in a corrective labor camp in 1937 at the age of 48. Muraviev's trail ends around 1930 when he was roughly 45 in a detention camp, probably on the infamous Sovetsky Islands in the White Sea. Yaroslavsky was shot dead while trying to escape from Sede camp in December 1930, aged around 35. Bogdanov died in 1928 at the age of 55 after performing a blood transfusion experiment on himself. Dalkind died of a heart attack at 48 in 1936 upon receiving the news that the Central Committee of the Communist Party had condemned and banned his pedology as quote-unquote anti-Marxist pseudoscience. It seems equally superfluous to explain at length why, after the end of the Second World War, and all the more after the implosion of the Soviet Union in the Eastern Bloc around 1990, virtually no one in the East or the West has the slightest interest in a revolt against the human condition. The old Adam, the unconscious and the entire syndrome of finitudes, except in the simulation rooms of the unrestricted modern museum, where there is a curator for every revolt. It would be a grave error, however, to conclude from the global anti-utopianism after 1945, which was only broken up by the third youth movement in the 20th century, the International Student Revolt, that the system of modern societies had lost its forward orientation and its quality as a universal training camp for ever-growing virtuosities, or qualifications and competencies. In reality, the global system after 1945, 1945 simply carried out the necessary course correction, it eliminated the mode of revolution from its catalogue of operative options, instead deciding entirely on that of evolution. The appearance of neo-revolutionary discourses around 1968 was merely an expanded Romanticism that appropriated such historical figures as Lenin, Stalin, Mao, Brecht and Wilhelm Reich as ready-mades. In the principal current of the time, the gradualness party came to power more, once more, led by an elite of determined professional evolutionaries behind the exterior of the general anti-revolutionary mood which articulated itself discursively as anti-totalitarianism or anti-fascism lay a return to the progressive traditions of the baroque and the enlightenment whose pragmatic core is the relatively constant rationally supervised expansion of human options In order to take part in these optimization movements, it was no more necessary for progress to be writ large than to feign belief in the goddess of history. The development of the Western civilizatory complex after 1945 seems to provide almost complete confirmation for the moderate. It led to the saturation of one's surroundings with easily accessible means of world improvement for most their distribution occurred partly through free markets partly through services of the redistributive state and the overgrown insurance system the two apolitical operationalizations of the solidarity principle which do more for the practical implantation of leftist motifs than any political ideology could The most important intellectual historical realignment, however, lay in the fact that Metanoia changed its direction yet again. After an era of bloody slogans and malign abstractions, the commonplace seemed like something one could bring back once more. Countless people realized that the here and now was a remote island on which they had never set foot. This supplied one of the preconditions for the rediscovery of the ethical distinction in its original form the distinction between concern for oneself and attention to everything else. Nothing was more helpful for the disenchanted revolutionaries than the re-actualization of this distinction. In Jean-Luc Godard's film Passion, 1982, a figure utters the key sentiment of the time, quote, one does not save oneself by saving the world, end quote. After half a century of militant youth movements, a creature that had been absent from the scene for a long time resurfaced, the adult. Its reappearance gave life to offensive pragmatisms that filled empty word shells like quote unquote, democracy, quote-unquote civil society, or quote-unquote human rights with actual content. Thus the awareness of what had been achieved was accompanied by a broad agenda outlining the next optimization steps for countless targets of progressive praxis. Today is the real working form of a decentralised international that articulates itself in tens of thousands of projects in the traditions of world improvement elan, without any central committee that would have to, or even could tell the active what their next operations should be. The all-pervasive pragmatism of the post-war years must not therefore be dismissed as restoration as the eternal Jacobins would like, nor does it express any return to modesty. In reality, the complex of Western quote-unquote societies under the leadership of the USA has constantly raised the level of economic and technical evolution since the 1960s to the point where the ability of populations to keep up with their fleeting financial and media system became problematic. This became manifest primarily after the neoliberal coup against the semi-socialism of the mixed economy that dominated the West after 1945 until the Thatcherist, Reaganist caesura of the late 1970s. Through Through this aggravation of the climate, Global capitalism transpired as the agency of permanent revolution, demanded in vain by the ideologues of the communist command-based economy. The mixed economy was popular as long as a capitalism domesticated by the welfare state could present itself as the power that more or less kept the promises of declared socialism. In the meantime, the accelerated permanent revolution, known for the last 20 years as quote-unquote globalism, Is compelling countless people to work once more on the expansion of their passivity competence, much to the displeasure of the last devotees of quote-unquote permanent revolution in Europe, who dream incessantly of the lost comfort of Rhine capitalism. Exposed to the cruelties of the expanded world market, they feel the compulsion to have an operation again, this time to improve their competing fitness on the now unpredictable world markets. In the great financial crisis of 2008, however, the necessity of having operations also caught up with the operators. The supra-epochal tendency of modernity towards a de-verticalization of existence continued under the present conditions. At the same time, the symbolic immune systems demanded fine tunings that would break through some of the automatisms of overly-cued secularism. This is the origin of the widespread new interest in quote-unquote religious and spiritual traditions, and the discreetly reawakening awareness of vertical imperatives. In fact, a resolute anti-verticalism established itself in the dominant forms of the Zeitgeist after 1945. In Existentialism as the Cult of Finitude, in vitalism, as the cult of overexertion; in consumerism, as the cult of metabolism; and in tourism, as the cult of changing location. In this despirited time, top athletes took over the role of guarding the holy fire of exaggeration. They are the ubermenchen of the over of the modern world, beheaded ubermenchen who strive to reach heights where the old human being cannot follow them, not even within themselves. It is the inner androids that now constantly exceed themselves. All that the old human being inside the athletes themselves can offer is a dull commentary on the performances of the uber-androids they embody.